Hello again, everybody. This is James Bartley, and you're listening to the Cosmic Switchboard Show. Today, my very special guest is the Magellan. The Magellan, her name is Liz, is a dear friend of mine and a colleague. She is a healing facilitator, intuitive, writer, and empath. Her name is derived from combining the color magenta and her star sign, Leo. It is pronounced Magellan. Here you will find different parts of the journey she has taken to remember who she is beyond this vessel that she currently occupies and the knowledge she's collected along the way as well as the techniques and tools she uses daily to create lasting healing of the body, mind, and spirit. She is a crystal healing therapist with a diploma from the School of Natural Health Sciences, although much of what she does during the crystal therapy sessions she offers comes from within. At this time, it is of utmost importance for us to remember who we really are. And her website is themagellian.com, and we'll have her, a link to her website on our dedicated YouTube channel as well as our Cosmic Switchboard website. So without any further ado, Liz, the Magellian, welcome to the Cosmic Switchboard show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you, Liz. And I'm really excited about introducing you to the listening audience because I know that since you and I have become acquainted and been working with each other, how much in many ways you've enriched my life. I've learned a lot from you. Uh, We've learned a lot from each other. The people listening, I hope, will be able to discern the integrity, the, the sincerity that comes from you. So I'm really excited about having you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been great getting to know you and working with you also. Could you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your background and the journey, the milestones that brought you to this point? It's been um, a long road for me, actually, but I had a fairly normal childhood. Um, I grew up in quite a conservative home, so my, I guess, magical side wasn't overly encouraged. So I learned at a young age to be very good and to listen to what I was told to do and to kind of push down the inner part of myself that new things were a bit different than what they seemed. And I always believed in, like I said, magic and and crystals and doing things according to my heart, but my family was looked at as like quite highly in the community. So I had to really stick to maintaining that image and, and not honoring who I was. So basically over time, I um, became quite depressed and I kind of stifled who I was. And that led me on to different parts of my journey. That's a key part of your story as well, Liz, was the aspect of having to shut down your true internal self and who you are and what you're really all about. Did you want to talk about that? Because later on, if you don't mind sharing that, it it delved into that whole pharmaceutical, pharmacological control system. And you came out of the other end of it. And sadly, some people never make it through the other side. Yes, which is very unfortunate, but thankfully I did make it. 
basically when I was about 12 years old, I remembered that I had been sexually abused at age three. And that was the time where I was just going through puberty and it's very awkward time for anyone going through it. But when you have a memory like that come up, like a bubble you've been holding down your whole life and all of a sudden it's there and you're remembering everything that happened, it's quite um, disrupting to your life. And that's when I started acting out more. And by that, I mean, I got into really feeding those negative thought forms. I would cut my wrists. I attempted suicide with different methods. And if something went wrong in my world, it was a huge tragedy. And little did I know at that time, but there are things that feed on that kind of energy. And I believe I had a lot of those vampires sitting there feeding on my energy. And so my parents didn't know what to do with me. And I do come from a family who's had a history with mental health issues. So I was taken to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I, I can't remember which. And that's when I first began taking medication. And starting any sort of medication, and this was for depression and anxiety, it's no easy feat. You're putting a foreign substance in your body, and the side effects are just as unpleasant as they say so quickly during the ads on TV. And they get by that by doing it with that nice, pleasant voice, you know, like, if you experience vomiting, you're going to be okay. Tell your doctor. And you don't even think that uh, this is going to be bad for me because we're basically brainwashed to believe, hey, this is okay. That lady's got a pleasant voice and I'm going to be fine. But I found adapting to medication was one of the most difficult things I went through. Not only did it numb who I was, but the side effects were horrific. And sometimes the suicidal thoughts increase from medication too, which is something I experienced. I've spoken to other people, Liz, who told me that under the influence of some of these pharmaceuticals, they felt uh, side effects, physiological effects, which they can only describe as like a zapping feeling in their brain, like wow. like these zaps going on. Did you have anything like that or anything similar to that? Not so much in my brain, but I did develop restless legs or restless leg syndrome. And I used to refer to it as dancing legs. I would be sitting there at nighttime trying to relax and my legs would suddenly kick out involuntarily and I was unable to control that. And in fact, the way that they did deal with that was just prescribing more medication. It was called clonazepam, which is a, a form of Valium. And that stuff is extremely strong. And I would take it before bed and 
I basically would sleep so deeply that like nothing could wake me. I have a cat who would actually, I think he was quite disturbed at how out of it he noticed that I was. And he would put his claws in my head and eat my hair and try to wake me up. And I wouldn't wake up. And my life partner who I'm with at this time, when he came into the picture and saw what my cat was doing to me, he couldn't believe it. And when he realized it was the medication doing that, he really encouraged me to come off of that. How long were you on the medication for? And what was going on during your life while you were on the medications? You mentioned that you felt parasitical entities around you at times in your life. Did they manifest during this period also when you were on on the meds? That's so interesting that you ask that. I would say yes, they did. And actually last week I was going through some of my old journals. And one of the things I found was this message I wrote to one of these popular brand name antidepressants. And it's the gist of it basically said, you know, my demons are back. I am dealing with thoughts of trying to kill myself. And it it was a very dark message. But at the end, it said, you know, a sarcastic thank you to this medication. Yeah, uh, F you very much, Merck Novartis. (laughs) (laughs) And all the rest of you. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We've had Jerry Marzinski and Sherry Sweeney on the show. And they are very much pioneers as far as pointing out the fact that what people perceive to be negative intrusive thoughts, voices in the head, OCD thought loops, are actually these malevolent entities that manipulate people. And it's entirely up to you how much you feel comfortable sharing. Could you give us an idea what some of the thought forms were like, what some of the, if you had them, OCD thought loops were like, and how did you deal with them, and what was the physiological effect, if any, when you heard these things? Well, James, this takes me back to a really dark time in my life, and I'm happy to share it because I'm no longer there. But one time I do remember very well um, is a time when I was in university, and basically they were telling me to, when I cut myself, I used scissors. So they encouraged me, you know, get the scissors. And I went and locked myself in a bathroom with the scissors and I began to cut my wrist. And it's like an overpowering bunch of voices. It's not just one. And they were telling me to, this is very dark, but to write on my arm, die, B-I-T-C-H with my blood and I did at that point and you know I'm still here today that was over well I'd say maybe about 15 years ago so that's in my past but that's the sort of thing that you fight with when you do when you have a mental illness and during that time that this uh 
episode occurred, were you on the meds at that point or did that come later or before? I was on the meds. So they, in other words, they didn't do any good. If anything, they may have exacerbated the whole situation. Exactly. Yeah, and you find out that it just, all the different ones, like if that didn't work, because I'd go back to the doctor and say, look, this is what I was feeling, and I tried to kill myself on this medication. Oh, you know, well, let's try you on another one. And then you go through the side effects and starting over with that. Meanwhile, you're coming off of a very strong drug. It's like going through withdrawals from any drug, even street drugs. So when you're coming off this stuff, you've got vertigo, you know, it feels like your world's going up and down, um, you're sick to your stomach, you're dizzy, you're hungry, you're not, you're everything you can imagine. And it, it's like going through hell. There may have been other aspects of this malign influence, these intrusive thoughts on a greater or lesser scale. On a day-to-day basis, when they weren't telling you to outright kill yourself, I know some of this can be quite subtle. A lot of it has to do sometimes with despair, despairing thoughts, hopelessness, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And a lot of it has to do with self-loathing and self-recrimination. Did you go through that process as well? Oh, yes. Yes, you think things like, well, and and it's put in your mind like a, I'm not good enough, or you're terrible. Um, nobody likes you, you know, stuff like that. And I still deal with some of those thoughts even to this day. And I, I am able to realize that they're not me and to kick them out. But you have to be very strong. If you let them get in through that crack, then it can take over your mind and that's not what we want. It sounds like your partner played a a key role in helping you get off the meds and getting you back on track. Uh, Can you tell our listeners what it was like, the process of getting off the meds and then dealing with these intrusive thoughts? Because by, by that point, you're realizing, well, these meds, if anything, they're making things worse. They're not helping me. And plus all these bad side effects I have to deal with Mm -hmm. on top of all all that. Uh, Could you give us an idea of the process of detoxing um, physically, mentally, body chemistry, et cetera, and how that helped you get back on track? Well, the first step for me actually believing that I could come off the meds was realizing what the root issue was for me, causing my distress. And that is going back to the beginning of our conversation, the initial abuse that I suffered. I never dealt with that. I just kind of thought, oh, this happened. I can move on and I don't need to process it. But the body holds on to the memory of that. And it takes a lot of inner work to work through and heal. So that was the first step was realizing that there's a problem and I need to look at it instead of just putting a bandaid on it and expecting that it would go away. The second step was definitely having my partner to support me and just say, like, I can tell you don't need medication. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. These people are telling you there's something wrong with you and I see who you are and and that's not true. They're telling you lies. 
So there was that. There was the breaking free of family influence too, because several people in my family do struggle with depression and feel that they must be medicated. Mm. And, you know, some people have come off their medication and have had, we'll say wild experiences where they crash and burn. During this process, Liz, was there something, uh, whether internal or external to you, that you were able to utilize, able to leverage to help you get back on track? Yes, actually, it was internal and external. A good friend of mine referred me to this intuition workshop, and I finally had the courage to attend. And when I did, I met a mentor who supported me through the process of dealing with the abuse in a different way than any sort of psychology or psycho therapy does and she taught me to do shadow work now actually focusing on that initial abuse is what she did is she had us look at qualities that we wouldn't want ever to be listed in our obituary words that we wouldn't want to have describing us and for me I never wanted to be referred to as a pervert because once you go through abuse, you do feel very perverse and like there's something wrong with you and that you're sick. So she sat there with me and heart to heart, she had me say, I'm a pervert. And even now it still holds a little bit of a charge for me, but I had to keep saying that until it had no feeling. And then she had me look at, you know, and this is tough for people to wrap their minds around, but in what ways would being a pervert be good? And the things I could come up with were, you know, I know how other perverts think. So maybe, you know, I could be taking down perverts and, you know, reducing harm. I had to look at how being a pervert kept me safe. So I guess you could say I kind of had a pervert radar and I could watch out for people trying to attack me and that sort of thing. So I really had to dig deeply, but I had to look at that shadow side of me and integrate it. And in learning how to do that, that really shifted things for me. And I was able to go back to that doctor and say, I want to come off my medication. And he basically said, no. You are like a diabetic. You will need to be medicated forever. And that just, that was a turning point for me. And I knew, nope, we're not going to be listening to that. And I waited until I felt I was ready to stop taking medication. And, you know, it might have been a year or a year and a half. It took a while because I was dealing, like I said, with the family stuff. Hey, a doctor, a person in authority is telling me I need to be medicated, so I better listen to them. And then I dealt with my own stuff, and I finally got to the point where I thought, okay, 
Liz, if you want to get off this medication, what are you going to do to protect yourself if you fall? And I made a deal with myself that I'd exercise every day, even for 15 minutes. And that's what I did, kept the endorphin levels up. And I haven't been on medication for, boy, like eight or nine years now. And I'm alive and better than I've ever been. So many people have told me that when they were able to detox from all the meds, they can finally feel again. They can finally feel what it is to be back in your own skin, feel what it's like to have a normal train of thought, so to speak, right? And be able to step outside, take a deep breath of fresh air and actually start to live again. Because I've seen people... Um, one person comes to mind, they were applied so heavily with drugs that, I mean, they could hardly even think straight. They were, they were taking clonopin and all these really powerful drugs. And and when they had a detox, it, it was, in, in this particular person's case, it was a pretty ugly sight because she went through hell, basically, and had to be hospitalized. But eventually, she found the right doctor who gradually weaned her off a lot of these drugs. And so she was able over time to become her more natural self. And I think that that's part of this pharmacological nightmare is to get everyone pilled up, get everyone in a state of psychosis, basically, mm-hmm. to normalize insanity and, and mandate, you know, create this psychiatric tyranny. Absolutely. And over time, you were working with this gal who put you through this intuitive process. And I, and I must say, one of the things you mentioned about looking at your dark side and the inner shadow work, I've read a lot of the books by the FBI profilers and what they do, they make no bones about it. They, they put you into the mind of a serial killer. So when you read their books mm. and they do profiles on these people, of course, they don't talk about the reptilian hybridization aspect of it and all the entity attachment aspects that we understand. But it's still, it takes you down a dark road uh, when you read their accounts and the mental thought processes uh, and the writings and the ramblings of some of these serial killers, some of these uh, perverts and and sexual uh, offenders. So what you did was very brave, uh, Liz, because a lot of people, they wouldn't go there, but you faced fear head on. No fear, K-N-O-W, fear. Know it and move past it and work past it. Yes, and it's all about knowing yourself. And I think that's what's at the root of all of this. And so much of the, so many of the problems in the world today is people don't know who they are. They don't know their power. They believe outside authorities, they believe what they see on TV, they believe the ads, the billboards. And if we could just accept each other as we are, and actually love each other, I think that could make a huge difference. As you began to recover and be comfortable in your own skin again, working with this intuitive person, but also the gifts, the skill sets you'd brought with you into this incarnation, did your psi abilities begin to enha- become more enhanced or did it reach like a, a normalization level where you were at where you should have been in the first place? I came to a place where I started to actually recognize my abilities and I am an empath. So 
I've learned that many of the feelings I do have aren't even mine, which was very freeing because then I learned I didn't need to hold on to these emotions or the things coming at me. I just learned to honor myself and spend more time in solitude when I needed to instead of being forced out into the world and around people that didn't support me or who I found difficult to be around. But my abilities also, they did increase. One of the training processes we went through was to learn how our intuition speaks to us. We were taken back to a time when we first had like an intuitive hit and what that felt like for us. And we learned that intuition doesn't scream at you. It is very neutral. It's just a feeling that comes and you just know what to do in that moment. That's a key point because so many people, they try to rationalize their way through deeply irrational, distorted world. They try to use logic and apply logic to completely illogical circumstances where they're trying to normalize all kinds of perversities, all kinds of abominations, and we're supposed to just roll over and, and go along with it and just kick our self-worth and our integrity to the curb, basically. Mm-hmm. What were some of the big hits as far as intuition was concerned? Because you pointed out how subtle it can be and how nuanced it is right? It's not a case where you're having these voices scream in your head because you already went through the inverse of that. This is more of an inward process where you just get a subtle feeling. Uh, Could you give us an example of perhaps both ends of the spectrum when maybe like a warning popped up and said, okay, well, something is going to happen soon, maybe not verbalized or even telepathically messaged in such a way, but in a way that was unmistakable or also an example of a very nuanced, subtle way in which the the intuition uh, manifested itself because I think it's important for listeners to understand the difference between something internal and something that's externally telepathically put into one's head. Right. So an example of one of my first intuitive experiences that I recall is I was in my backyard with my dad and he was laying bricks in the yard to make a walking path and he was putting um, sand down first and then he put a brick and he'd take a rubber mallet and he'd smack the brick down and then you know repeat the process and I was sitting there watching him and all of a sudden I just subtly heard step back and so I did and the top of the mallet flew off right where I was wow and you know it was just that simple And as time went on and you began to come into your own power and and begin to realize your metaphysical, innate metaphysical and spiritual potential, was there any kind of backlash or spiritual warfare reprisal from these dark forces that had tried to hold you enthralled them in the past prior to and during the time you were on meds? Was there anything that popped up either in the physical realm or, or more? from an interdimensional, hyperdimensional standpoint, where something tried to like knock you back off course? Yeah, actually, in the last several years, so 
when I became more awakened to what's going on in this world, because that came after the whole intuition thing, I basically made a decision to heal a tooth on my own. Uh, I do have all my wisdom teeth and I know dentists believe you need them removed, but I just intuitively felt I needed to hold on to my teeth. And I noticed that there was a cavity in one of them and the dentist wanted to remove it. And I basically said, I will go home and think about that. And I decided to change with using diet and different supplements and whatnot and as I broke free from the resta uh, restraints of dentistry and what's expected there, um, I dealt with a lot of those obsessive thought loops that I mentioned earlier. And how I know that they aren't my intuition is they basically scream at you and they say the same thing repeatedly. You're doing the wrong thing. You're making a huge mistake. You're going to die. You're going to lose all your teeth. Like that sort of example. Not, you know, if, if my intuition wanted me to go to the dentist, it would say, go to the dentist. Just that simply. It's not going to scream at me like, you're doing the wrong thing. So one of the other things I did intuitively is I started to really work with crystals. And... One of the things I still faced challenges was, was the restless leg syndrome. And I did not want to take medication for that. So one night I just decided to start sleeping with a piece of tiger's eye in my hand. And miraculously, it made the restless legs go away. And I was able to have solid, really healthy sleeps. It, it made me... I was, it blew my mind that something so simple could help me and I didn't have to pop some sort of pharmaceutical concoction. I just had to hold on to a crystal. Did you get an intuitive feeling that you should choose tiger eye and, and how did that process come about where you decided to use the tiger eye vice some other crystal? You know, I think it was just synchronicity. I was really drawn to the colors. I liked the striations on it. And I remember actually purchasing it at a, a store that was in a place that I really enjoyed traveling to with my sister. So for whatever reason, I just felt, you know, I'm going to hold on to this crystal tonight and see what happens. And actually I've, I've honed my abilities with crystals and just kind of found out through trial and error what works for what and what doesn't. And it's kind of fun. That's, that's how you reawaken to the actual magic of things. People think crystals are just rocks and they're more than just rocks. They are amazing structures that vibrate at perfect frequencies and when you have them in your field around your body it brings you up to that same level that they resonate at and it helps repair your subtle bodies and they can really bring you back to earth each reaching earlier for 
crystals because we were starting at interference when you were making some key points. So I reached over and grabbed my selenite sword and, and you grabbed the crystal too. And then the, the reception. The got one. <laughs> yeah. You got a selenite too. Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting is when you hear people roll their eyes, Oh, crystals. Right. But they utilize crystals for radios. They utilize crystals for all kinds of technology. The stories that we've heard from people that have been on very advanced craft with certain ET races and or higher dimensional ET races, they talk about the crystals as being an integral part of their societies where some of the ships they describe are entirely made up of crystal. I had a guest on here lately, Bruce Fenton, who talked about this gigantic crystal ship he was on in, in a past life that was unfortunately shot down in a double cross by the Draco Orions. So when people hear stories about crystals and roll their eyes, well, the military industrial complex is going around the world and scooping up these sources of rare crystals precisely to utilize them in their weaponry, precisely to use, utilize them in their communication systems, which is all to do with frequency. Could you tell us a bit without giving up the, the whole game because it's important for people to understand when we talk about healing modalities, as some of the listeners may have figured out by now, Liz has gone through an arduous process of healing and reintegration and we're all works in progress. It's important for us when we have certain healing modalities or certain innate abilities to not give the whole game away because in the wrong hands, not just in the hands of malign, uh, malevolently influenced people, but also in the hands of people who aren't entirely healed or reintegrated, they may try to utilize some of these techniques and they may do more harm than good. They may harm themselves. They may harm others. So, you know, we're always mindful from an operational security OPSEC standpoint about sharing certain things. But so, you know, with that in mind, Liz, do you want to give the listeners kind of a broad outline without going into specifics about what you do, the, the intuitive healing, the remote healing, and utilizing crystals and, and how that, you know, works with people at a distance even? One of the things I do is intuitively I'm guided as to which crystal to use with a particular person. And basically, I do a remote layout on them, which means I place crystals around a body that represents the person's body. And then I do a bunch of energy work where I align what I call their me team with my me team and I readjust them. So by me team, I mean a person's higher self, multidimensional selves, oversoul, magnetic self, fractals, spirit, soul, all those different parts that we all have. And I use my me team to talk to their me team to find out where they need help and what we need to do to fix things and get things moving smoothly. Because as James said, we're all, you know, constantly healing and working on ourselves. And I, I went through a process where I learned that I never want to call on something outside of me. 
Yes. I, I believe it's very important for us to know who we are and to harness the energy within instead of calling anything outside. We got into a discussion the other day about these people, Liz, you and I, without getting specific and naming names, this penchant that people have for calling in archangels, for calling in just this, that, or the other guide, so much of that is external. And because of the blockages in the heart center and the solar plexus area, but especially the heart center, there is this lack of discernment at work, which provides a happy hunting ground for some of these marauding malevolent entities to malignly influence people in, in the form of bad guidance and bad suggestions and get them running around spinning their wheels. Could you talk a bit about the importance of maintaining a clear and free heart center and how that factors into your work? You just, you really need to be careful what you invite into your space because whatever you do ask in will manipulate your fields and your thoughts and everything about you, including your heart, which is why it's, it's fine to call on yourselves. But if you're calling things outside of you, you will find yourself being manipulated and it might feel good and you might not know what's happening. You might think, you're talking to wonderful loving beings, but I have learned through experience <laughs> that these are not always loving beings. And I'm not saying there aren't good guides, but you need to be extremely careful what you're calling on. And I would highly advise that you rely on yourself. In this context, by self, this is the me team that you were referring to. I, I love that term you, you came up with. Yeah oversoul, uh, the different aspects of ourselves, past, present, and future, if you look at it in linear terms. Mm -hmm. And uh, this also takes into account prior incarnations, parallel incarnations, future incarnations, what have you. But the bottom line is they're all aspects of ourselves. We're not going outside of that bubble, so to speak, and, yes. and calling in things that may or may not have our best interests at heart. Exactly. Because you know what you need better than anybody. And you can look back at the example of the doctor I mentioned or the dentist or my well-meaning family members. Guess who knew the best for me? Me. That's right. You know the best for you. With the crystal healing, that this modality that you've developed over time uh, intuitively, when you work with people at a distance, uh, sometimes the results, the beneficial results can come about quite suddenly and other times it's a gradual incremental process. What would you encourage the people who are going through one of your sessions from a mental standpoint, from a mindset standpoint, as far as expectations are concerned? Because what happens, what I've noticed, Liz, is there's some people out there, they bounce from one self-help guru to another. Everything is an outward projection. This person has got a really smooth rap, and I'll go to him. And More and more money is expended, more and more time and resources, and then the deflation kicks in because they're back at square one. From a healing perspective, 
what's the best kind of mental attitude? What's the best kind of uh, state of mind for someone to be in if they really are serious about getting healed and getting back on track? I feel it's important for people to be coherent. And by that, I mean, be patient with the results. If you don't notice something right away, sit with it for a week or longer and see if you notice anything. And if you're getting the strong urge to run to another healer or, you know, somebody else to help you again, you're not listening to yourself. You need to stop and take some deep breaths and sit with it and see what is going on. Is this an obsessive thought loop? Is that why I'm running somewhere else? Or do the inner work. Just stop and think about what might be going on and guiding you from place to place. Because we do hold the keys within ourselves to do this for ourselves. You don't always have to run to somebody else. And in my line of work, with the healing facilitating I do, I have seen results happen overnight, which I would equate to a miracle. One person I worked on suffered from depression for years and woke up and hasn't been depressed in months and said she felt like she'd taken a a magic pill from a doctor and she just had a crystal therapy session with me. And then with my partner, he has, he had chronic back pain and I worked on him for several sessions. I believe it was about five and it took about a month and a half, but the pain was gone. And during that time I worked on psoriasis that he had and it's taken about three months, but it's actually starting to disappear. But if he was running around and putting different creams on or bouncing from doctor to doctor or going, you know, to different places, he would never know where, where that happened or what worked. So it's good to be coherent and be calm and still within yourself. The still part is key, Liz, because what happens sometimes is if someone has worked with a very good healer, either in close proximity or remotely or a combination of the two, I think what happens sometimes is once at least some or perhaps even all of the OCD thought loops are removed, however, you know, temporarily or otherwise, the the intrusive thoughts are removed, the OCD thought loops are removed. What happens sometimes is the internal dialogue, uh, the frequency and the intensity of it diminishes. And so what happens sometimes is the silence becomes thunderous. They're going like, what's wrong? Well, nothing is wrong. Everything is right. They're not hearing all these thoughts. They're not hearing uh, and having these compunctions and, and obsessive thought loops going on. So an important part of the healing process is to to relearn if you will how to be comfortable in one's own skin because if one is used to constant internal dialogue constant chatter constantly in the headspace it's quite an adjustment to go from that to 
that still silent voice where you get a nuanced, subtle message and then learn how to work with that and learn to adapt to that. And I feel that you could adapt to that by listening to instrumental music, something without words that helps you just kind of stay in a zone or even by listening to rife frequencies. Just let that frequency come in and soothe and calm you and just focus on the frequency. You don't need to listen to the thoughts. And that's not the easiest thing to do. But once you get to that space, boy, you'll be open to getting information from your me team, yourselves, and who knows what could come for you. Sometimes our biggest obstacle is ourselves, Liz. We're so shame-based. We can't shut down the internal dialogue. We can't prevent all these OCD thought loops from, from pouring in. And then for whatever reason, if they stop pouring in and then it's quiet up there in our headspace, we're almost at a loss of, of what to do. We think that it's wrong or there's something wrong with this. And we've all been around these people that are chatterboxes. And what, even when they're alone, these people just sing and talk to themselves constantly. And when you're around them and you're around their field, man, it's a difficult adjustment to try to stay in one's own alignment when you're around these people. And I found that, you know, sometimes you just have to detach from them, get around your own silent bubble, so to speak, and then remember what it's like. Oh, that's what it's like to have solitude and peace and quiet. Some people have made a cacophony of noise the norm. They can't have a moment of silence in their home. They've always have to have stereos blasting out, all kinds of noise. And it's almost an attempt in, at some level for them to drown out all these thought loops in their head or whatever, because that's another thing that goes on too, is the noise pollution, not only internally from these intrusive thoughts, but externally also. So we have to get used to a still silent space within us and around us. Absolutely. Now, in the time you got left, Liz, in this first segment, and thank you, it's been very enlightening and thought-provoking, some of the things you've shared with us, you know, this journey, coming back from the dark spaces you'd been to. Because in the second half, you're going to share some of the things that had happened to you during in the past when there was all these, let's say, external attempts at external interference and how you had to rebuff that and how do you have to move on from that in the time you got left can you tell our listeners a, a bit about what it's like from an intuitive empathic standpoint because you made a key point earlier about how you learn not to take on board these emotions these energies what have you that don't belong to you because i've come across so many healers intuitives, empaths that have over time become sickened because they didn't have the means or they didn't have the forethought to set up shields, if you will, to not take on board the energies of the people, places and things that they're around and even the people they're not working with, let alone the people they're working with. I know I've known empaths that have become very ill, but what have you done to keep your, your energy field clear? One of my favorite things I do is what I call an 
EMP blast from my heart, like an electromagnetic pulse. And I visualize this golden light beaming out of my heart, but it goes around my entire body like a huge bubble. And it shakes off anything negative coming my direction. So it kind of reminds me, like I'm a video game character, and I just release this EMP, and all the stuff around me just shakes a lot. I don't know if you have pets, but I've watched my cat. He, you know, just shakes his body every once in a while and shakes off whatever's in that, whatever's around him, bothering him. So. I think it's important to do that. And I especially do the EMP if I'm, you know, going to a doctor's appointment or walking through sick people or I'm in a negative situation and I don't just send out one. I just do it until I feel clear. I have my own, and I'm going to try what you just described. I have my own means of uh, kind of protecting myself. I mean, there's the, the normal means when you're, pushing a trolley down a shopping aisle at the grocery store. At the other end of it, there's a person coughing and hacking. And that's why yeah. I throw the trolley in reverse. Hold and, your breath. Yeah, hold your breath, and you practically hear the tires squeal. And also, when you're around people that you know that they're negatively energized and you know that they're basically negative people, they just it's a subconscious effort when I'm around some of them, when I, I'm compelled to be around with them uh, for whatever reason just to throw my shields out and to constantly be mindful of clearing my field of any unwanted influences because the entities that work through others, they're greedy. They're not just content with working through someone else and sucking up their vitals and their energy. They, they kind of want to share the love, if you will, you know, muck around with other people who happen to be around. So, so thank you for sharing that. Well, we've reached the end of a fascinating first segment with my dear friend, Liz, the Magellan. Uh, Liz, do you want to share your website uh, with our listeners? Sure. It's themagellian.com, and that's spelled T-H-E-M-A-G-E-L-I-O-N.com. And you've been listening to the Cosmic Switchboard Show. If you like what we do, if you believe in what we do, please go to thecosmicswitchboard.com, sign up and become a member, and we'll see you at the top of the next segment. 